From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we take a walk alongside a man who has been sustained by his faith through some desperate and dark times. When we speak to Dean Alton Pollard III of Howard University's School of Divinity. Despite a childhood of racism and violence, we talk about Dean Pollard's expansive hospitality and his views of the gospel. Stay tuned. Reverend Dr. Alton B. Pollard III, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. It's good to be with you, David. Well, I wanted to start out today. Uh, the context for our conversation is the Rooks Lecture here at Chicago Theological Seminary. In and around uh, your your work as a public speaker, you are also a public theologian. And one example of that came at the beginning of 2015 when you were one of the signatories to an open letter from the various deans and presidents of African-American theological schools in the United States. And what this letter was attempting to do, it, it seems, was to speak to the moment that we are in at the present time. But I wonder if, if for our listeners, you could elaborate on what the, what the moment and the crisis was that this letter was, was being addressed to. Well, I think it's fair to say that the, the crisis is of long standing. We live in, a, in an era when violence has become very much part and parcel of what we understand that we have to live with day to day. And this has no regard for race. But in the African-American community, it is a particularly pernicious recognition. When the moment in 2012 happened in Sanford, Florida, Trayvon Martin, uh, further fueled by what happened not too long thereafter in Ferguson, Missouri, followed in quick succession by Staten Island with Eric Garner and a host um, of other women and men of various ages um, all finding themselves um, meeting their demise in our democratic society uh, for reasons that had little of anything to do um, with their status other than the pigmentation of their skin. This precipitated, I think, for many of us in graduate theological education, a moment of discernment. The letter of which you spoke is actually uh, was actually uh, signed by about three dozen African American leaders, presidents, and deans. The what we call the CEOs and CAOs uh, in graduate theological education, not just in historically black theological seminaries, but all seminaries across the country. Um, we meet annually. Um, I am, am the facilitator of that uh, group, and it was in the context of our last meeting that we uh, knew we needed to take our energies to a different level, that theological education as it now stands was not sufficient for meeting the challenges of the day. Does what we teach 
also have impact beyond our ecclesial context. In fact, does it really have sufficient uh, impact within our ecclesial families? And this was, I think, of concern enough to us that we knew we had to draft a letter that would pose a challenge to all of the 275 or so member uh, schools across the United States and Canada, as well as a myriad of other uh, faith-based entities and persons of goodwill in general who are wrestling with uh, what is the significance of getting a graduate uh, theological degree? Uh, does it do more for you than certify? Does it do more than credential? Um, does it also um, help you establish capacity to advocate, uh, even to agitate, to be an activist, an avant-garde member of the social order so that you're not merely um, a preacher, but you are also very much a public servant. Um, you are a public theologian, but you are also very much a citizen of the body um, corpus. And so when we think in these larger terms, it really helps us to understand that um, we have a, a tremendous duty, a tremendous responsibility. And in theological education, we have not often enough assumed it. Hence, the Kairos moment, uh, God calling us to accountability, uh, to practice what we teach. Now, you've begun to touch on the next question that I want to ask. When you talk about uh, using this as a way of having your students sort of check the usefulness of the degree that they're receiving, uh, I'm going to play the skeptic for a moment because sometimes we have non-believers that listen to the show. And so if you have a public crisis moment of people of color being uh, beaten and killed by institutional powers, a skeptic might say, call a lawyer, call a judge, call a politician. Why in the world should we ever call a theologian? What value is a theologian in that moment? I think I would ask that same question. Um, I'm being facetious, but when we look at the history of, of the United States of America, when the laws of the land were very carefully legislated and placed in ways that ensured the dehumanization, in fact, the subhumanization of many persons, people of color, as you've noted, women, native peoples of this, um, of this land, people who did not have uh, sufficient uh, social status with respect to income or education. When we look at the, I think, the mass evidence, um, neither the courts nor our city halls, public officials, um, educational systems have um, risen to the challenge of ensuring the utter humanity of us all. Our churches have not risen to that status either. What has been the case, however, is that over the many centuries of struggle in our society, persons of faith, not just Christian, but persons of faith of a variety of backgrounds and persons of goodwill, both uh, traditionally religious and not, have understood that there is a greater ethos that binds us, that affords us the opportunity to embrace one another as human community. Those persons have always understood that the law of the land is itself a factor that 
often and again has to be transcended. And so the question about making sure that we stay within the boundaries to effect change when the very boundaries have been established to ensure the status quo maintenance is something that I think we have often and continually fight against. And so people of faith must always understand that there is a struggle to be had. The tragedy is, of course, the same can be said with respect to people of faith who think that the status quo ante is just fine. Uh, and they are willing to maintain the hierarchies, the hegemonies, the purviews that we have to ensure that those who have, have more, and those who do not have, have even less. So I, I understand that. But when we look at the uh, cumulative evidence of who in our society has been willing to challenge the givens, the norms, the canonical. Here is where it has begun with persons of faith. And they have provided the impetus for the courts, for the legislators, uh, for industry uh, to then move beyond their own reified boundaries. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Dr. Alton B. Pollard, the dean of the Divinity School at Howard University. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Let me see if I've, if I've heard you correctly. So in, in my original question, I asked about lawyers and judges and politicians. Lawyers work within the law. Judges judge the law, but they, they judge the law that exists. That's right. Politicians can change the law, but they do that, let's be honest, in very cynical constraints. That's right. But when you contrast those types of thinkers to people of faith, it's almost as if you were saying it's the people of faith because they they believe and they, they traffic in things not just of this world but of otherworldly things. They have the capacity to see an ethics beyond the law. They have a capacity to see um, a structure beyond the law and to pull us towards the betterment of our own laws by moving towards that external structure. Did I hear that correctly in what you were saying? Largely, Yes. You don't even have to look for, to other worlds. You can also look to the world within and know that there is something internal to the fabric of our being that suggests there is a commonality, a connectedness, an interrelatedness uh, to us all. And so whether one looks to the stars or whether one looks uh, to the DNA uh, for evidence I think there can still be a rapprochement. There can be a consistency of understanding and recognition that there is something profoundly magnificent in our capacity to connect with each other as human beings. And it is only the fear factor that keeps us apart. And as a sociologist, I'm, I'm well familiar with the fact that laws um, are necessary for, for governance. They are necessary for the maintenance of society. But the operative word is maintenance. And if the maintenance has de facto already established that some persons are more human than others, that others can be left on the margins, that they can be relegated to the periphery and somehow do not matter as much as the rest, that is a definition that has to be challenged and changed. Now, when you speak about this thing that all human beings share, this sort of common sensibility that if we look inside ourselves, was your phrase a moment ago, we would find, are you making that as a sociological claim? Are you making that as an ethical claim? Or is that for you a religious claim? 
<laughs> I'm laughing because I I don't feel the need to, to make the distinction. Um, they are all the above. And in the Western tradition, of course, we very much feel the need to have clear demarcations between um, those purviews of reality. That's not where I reside. So tell me a little bit about how you came to reside in this other place. So you, you've just uh, talked about Western reality. Have have you been uh, involved in, in travels or studies that have led you to, to see things from different perspectives? And if so, could you briefly for our listeners sort of walk us through the way that you came to your current position? I think it's I think I can safely say in three different ways. Actually two, but one is a bifurcated. First, experience growing up in St. Paul, Minnesota, in a lily white community where I was hated on pretty much every hand by the people who lived in our neighborhood. Where most days was a struggle to stay alive. Taught me that despite the naysayers, there's always a better way. And it was my faithfulness that I experienced in the context of my black church, the respite that I had at least one day a week away from the tumult of our neighborhood that provided the confidence, the stability, the security, the serenity to know that my dignity mattered no matter what others may say. We're speaking today with Alton B. Pollard. He's the dean of the Divinity School at Howard University. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. So I'd like to take a moment and talk to you about our partner in producing this show, the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. It sounds like an old-timey name, and that's because it's been around since 1908. It started out as a weekly event on Sunday evenings, hence the name, with thousands of people attending each week to hear uplifting messages from business people, preachers, statesmen, and philanthropists. In the 1920s, they went coast-to-coast on the radio. In the 1950s, they started one of the first religious television programs anywhere, ever. And they're still doing radio and television to this day. The Sunday Evening Club makes regular hour-long documentaries for PBS, highlighting the good being done by faith communities as they try and make situations better for the people of Chicago. You can find out more about the Sunday Evening Club and watch and listen to all the programs that they've been producing for more than 50 years at their website. That's csec.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're in conversation today with Dr. Alton B. Pollard. He's the dean of the Divinity School at Howard University. We're speaking in the context of his visit to the Chicago Theological Seminary in 2015. Before the break, we were discussing how the category of experience has become a touchstone for Dr. Pollard's theological reflection. You you really reached out for experience as a bedrock, and that reminds me of James Cone's sort of maneuver within the Reformed tradition where he says, you know, experience is a source for black theological thinking. The lived experience that that African-American peoples have had in the American context. And as you so eloquently said, your experience in high school that affected you badly also pushed you to 
journey to other experiences. You, you, you journey to an oasis in the church. And it also, it sounds like, if I'm hearing you correctly, it made you believe that there was something better Yes. That you could be looking for. Yes. And now what in the world in that situation would give a young man who was in a desperate situation, where does that hope come from? This is why faith matters. Um, I, I can honestly tell you that I remember from the earliest of ages, well before I started public school, having my own conversations with a reality that I could not name. It was not in church because at that time my family wasn't even going to church. Um, It did not come from the Bible, but I always had this profound sense of awareness, this profound sense of presence, this profound sense that, uh, I was indeed part of a universe that was far vaster than I. And that provided a kind of backdrop, I think, for the sociologists that would later come forth, the sacred canopy recognitions and all those kinds of things, understanding that it has less to do with whether one considers her or himself to be religious and more about recognizing whether or not one is part of a larger community of humanity and life than yourself. And there are all kinds of ways that one can parse that. Um, and uh, because I knew it so early on, even though all of the empirical evidence seemed to be going in the other direction in terms of, of uh, how people treated one, um, it was an even deeper recognition that was never lost to me. And so the quest, the spiritual quest in life was also the social quest, was also the academic quest, was the vocational quest. Is it possible in my higher education, in my public engagements, in my neighborhoods and communities where I resided, um, to meet people, um, where I was not supposed to be met. And with every occasion that that occurred, no matter how minute, it reminded me of the biblical refrain um, that we entertain angels unawares. A moment ago, you made reference to the mystical tradition, and you've published, in particular, a book, Mysticism and Social Change. And... There are different ways of thinking about mysticism in the religious traditions. One way is that there's an Eastern style of mysticism, a Western style of mysticism, uh, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Christian, distinct types of mysticism. But there's another argument, and one that says when you get behind the theology and the ritual and the liturgy, that mysticism forms an almost universal background noise or background radiation behind the religious traditions. Which of those two viewpoints, I have a sense which you're going to answer, but which of those two viewpoints uh, draws you more? Well, yes, you already know which way I'm going, David, but uh, it would definitely be the latter. Um, The unity of existence breaks down even uh, the community of descriptions that are called mystic. 
or that are called religious or that are called denominations or what you know whatever the language that are called metaphysics that are called physics for that matter as you know as we move into the natural and human sciences it doesn't um it doesn't matter i think the more granular um our work becomes our analysis and assessment the more we we um are capable of realizing uh, that there really is something profoundly um incredible about the common denominator called the human condition. And uh, the human condition is itself a part of the larger condition that is called life. And so that means um, how we treat creation as well as how we engage the cosmos. They're all interconnected, intertwined. Now, when you answer like that, um, there are going to be certain listeners to this show who I think will throw a tomato at the at the radio and they will, they will say, I, I thought... I thought that this was a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and didn't God say, I'm a jealous God, there are none other than me, there are none before me. So how do you, how do you answer the haters who would say mysticism uh, misunderstands or misapprehends what we're supposed to be doing uh, in Christianity or in, I guess, in, in, in this Western practice of Christianity? Right. Well, I mean, for me, that's very easy. It's a long time minister of the gospel, um, and I'm, I am a former pastor of several congregations as well. Um, so I'm very much a practitioner. Um, and I realize in that practice um, that the presence is always so much larger and vaster than any one of us can possibly imagine. And I'm perfectly fine with that. Part of the difficulty that we have in our Western uh, articulations of mysticism is that we have individuated it uh, to such an extent um, that we have voided, we have vitiated, I think it's um, very profound communal um, concerns. It's not an accident, as an example, that the greatest advocate for the anti-slavery movement were Quakers. It's It's not an accident that we have had throughout the impulses of this society, um, faith traditions that seem to not look like the norm um, and who yet instill. The spirituals, as an example, in the African-American tradition are very much a mystic-laden uh, phenomenon. <clears throat> and only those persons who participate in them with regularity, I think, really uh, can appreciate that to the extent that this happens. But we could we can go across traditions. When it comes to the... Uh, the uh, the good news, um, I find no contradiction there. Um, much of what we have reified or canonized is hardly the stuff of the Nazarene himself, and it's more the accoutrements and the trappings, etc., that surround him, including uh, the other uh, New Testament uh, writings. And of course, oftentimes we get embedded uh, in the uh, in the Hebrew scriptures in ways that are also as confining. So I'm, I'm not terribly concerned. The ethic that Jesus teaches us above and beyond all others is to love. And so, as a as a minister of the gospel, if I'm hearing you correctly, your distillation of what the gospel calls us to do in the course of your life, when you were feeling despair. You found a refuge of welcome 
and now you've just used the word to love. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, if we were to distill the gospel down to one core teaching, it would be welcome and love. Am I hearing that in, in what you're saying? Absolutely. Okay. And so when we look at congregations today that are perceived by some to be controversial because they are welcoming and affirming, because they are open and loving, because they give receptivity uh, to those that we would stigmatize and exclude. To me, that's very much against the gospel. It is even more so against God because it is God, as we understand in the biblical record, that gives us this good news to love. Um, And anything that prevents a human being from being able to love, I can only understand as somehow being also contrary to God. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Dr. Alton B. Pollard III. He's Dean of the Divinity School at Howard University. Now, when you were having this experience as a youth of of having uh, emotional and perhaps also physical violence done against you in, in the high school context, you said that you found a place of acceptance, a, a place of self-awareness, a place of greater than the moment. Would you would you style that as a as a kind of grace? Was that was that God's graciousness reaching out to you? And is is that is that part of what's what's animating the the way that you're thinking about this welcome and love for congregations now? Yes, yes. Was it deserved? I have no idea. We all we often say grace is undeserved. I I don't know anything about that. Um, I just know that I received it. And that's, that was good enough for me, and it still is. We started out the conversation talking about uh, this letter that was written in this moment of crisis, this Kairos moment when God is speaking. On my show several months ago, I, I interviewed Michelle Alexander, the author of The New Jim Crow, and mm-hmm. she, she does a very patient analysis of the ways in which every time that a new social reform, a new welcome has come, the powers that be have found ways to reinsert and reassert the same old prejudices just in new clothing. And in fact, the letter the letter that I referenced even mentions that, that in the 1950s, the Klan was walking around in sheets, and now those same ideals are more subtle That's in right. our society. So given that we have an institutional structure that seeks violence, an institutional structure that it was born in violence, that, not just seeks it. that not just seeks it, but thank you for that correction that also that also was born in it. What place does love have in correcting that? Why not pick up bats and bricks and break the system at its base? Why not do violence against the system? Why, where, I guess what I'm asking is where, where does the, the message of the crisis moment meet your very strong and trenchant call for love? Yeah. When it comes to, um, as you say, picking up the bricks or the bats or whatever, since I've had more than my share uh, thrown at me, um, I'm not terribly inclined to go in that direction. It dehumanizes the other. I'm not interested in devaluing persons that I disagree with uh, in the same way that I have been devalued. To me, it does not uh, equal wisdom. That equals foolhardiness. And I would much rather prefer to take the side of 
love and suffer the consequences that go with that, understanding that love is not a nice emotional uh, feeling. Oh, that's, that's certainly part and parcel. But, but that love is very rigorous. Love is very patient. Love requires uh, an exhausting capacity to follow through. And that means you really do have to work hard at it. And it means that you uh, must be in the room with people that you absolutely cannot stand on any other given day or way. And know, again, based on experience, if you've had them, that miracles do happen. And people that you absolutely know cannot possibly change do. But more than that, that systems can be impacted. They can be changed. It may not happen as quickly or rapidly as we want. I think that's where the rub really comes. Change may begin with us, but it may not be complete with us. And this brings me back to, to asking about this this work that I referenced earlier of yours with the title Mysticism and Social Change. But I'm curious about that because when I first read that, being familiar with, with the, the mystical tradition of various types of, of religious religious uh, uh, and faith traditions, mysticism seems to pull you away from the immediate and away from the structures to uh, equanimity with whatever is. You know, you make your peace with the world as it is because the world is all illusion. It's veil of Maya in the Hindu tradition. So in what way can we bring together this concept of mysticism and this concept of, of social change? And it may be that in your book you, you line this out, and I'm sorry that I've missed the <laughs> argument. But, but succinctly for our, for our listeners, I would be very curious to sort of understand, you know, how other, this otherworldliness, how this, this universality can speak to changing the structures that are so physically uh, debilitating and, as you say, have been born in violence. If I may quote... Um, Thurman, uh, who really serves as the basis for uh, for that book. When he was in seminary, um, he was one of two African Americans at his institution because uh, back in those days, you know, uh, black students were typically not allowed in in uh, these schools. But he was there, and he graduated class valedictorian and did all these other. things things. And as he was graduating, um, his professor um, extolled his intellect and virtue and and really pressed him to engage in uh, more of the timeless issues of life. In other words, he didn't want to see him bogged down with the uh, encasements of race and all that. And and I, I will always remember Thurman's response to that. And this was back in the uh, 1920s, and he said, or maybe his early 30s, and he said, um, a black man and his skin must go together. In the mystic tradition that comes out of the African-American world, there is no need to separate from the world, but to instead allow that mystic experience to more deeply take you into the world. It is the um, mystic experience of baby Suggs Holy in 
Toni Morrison's Beloved that takes you into the clearings and requires you to dance and to sing and to laugh and to clap and, and to cry because here in this mystic moment, you can love your black flesh um, because the world won't love it. It won't love any of your limbs. It won't love your tongue. It won't love your private parts. But you can love them and use that as an expression, a vehicle, a heuristic device, whatever you want to do, uh, to take you into uh, a humanizing world, to be um, a better contributor to that world than the world has been to you. And and that means you can march, you can protest, you can absolutely engage the social order in ways that are very political, that are economically challenging and all the rest. It doesn't mean that you are quiescent, that you sit on the sidelines or that you um, somehow take a sabbatical while others do uh, the heavy lifting. No, that's not what it means at all. It means that you always know that you have a reserve, a reservoir, a repository of the sacred um, with you that you can draw upon to ensure that as you are engaging the challenges of the day, whatever they may be, uh, whether it's marriage equality, whether it is uh, equal white rights of women, women's uh, bodies, their own, whether it is the issues of racial justice that we're wrestling with that moment or immigration, whatever the issue um, may be, always make sure that you've got something in the tank so that you do not simply become a caricature of yourself, a one-dimensional being who only lives for that struggle so that when the struggle has ended, you have lost your humanity because you know nothing else to do. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Alton B. Pollard III. Dr. Pollard is dean at Howard University's School of Divinity in Washington, D.C., We'll continue the conversation after a short break. Each week, I hear from listeners who write in to say that they're enjoying the show, and a lot of them ask me what they can do to help to support us. And first of all, I just want to let everyone know that we appreciate so much that you're listening, and thank you. The number one thing that you can do to help support us is to tell your friends about the show. If you listen to us through iTunes, it would also be fantastic if you took a moment to write a review. And if you want to, you could give us money. Earlier in the show, I talked about the partnership that we have with the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. And so many good things come from this partnership. But one of the best, by far, is that your donations to our show are now tax-deductible. You can find out more about supporting us at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. And again, thank you for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking this week with the Reverend Dr. Alton B. Pollard III. Dr. Pollard is Dean of Howard University School of Divinity in Washington, D.C., Before becoming dean at Howard in 2007, Pollard served in both religious and and educational institutions. He's an ordained Baptist minister, and he was pastor of John Street Baptist Church in Massachusetts, New Red Mountain Baptist Church in North Carolina, and AME Churches in Tennessee. 
He also directed the program of Black Church Studies at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and held faculty appointments at St. Olaf College and Wake Forest University. Pollard graduated with a B.A. in Religion and Philosophy and Business Management from Fisk University and a Master of Divinity from Harvard Divinity School and a Ph.D. from Duke University's Department of Religion. We spoke to Dr. Pollard in the context of his visit to Chicago Theological Seminary in 2015. I was very struck by what you just said uh, from from Thurman, the the quotation that a, a black man, a black person, and their skin has to go together. Yes. And uh, I thought about that in the context of the the bastardization of the reading of, of Scripture that occurred uh, for the slaveholders when they would look at, at the, the Old Testament and they would they would come across that passage about the descendants of Ham, accursed of God. Right. And um, the notion, and you still find that, you know, percolating through certain interpretations but also through certain new religious movements where the notion of skin color is tied to treachery or tied to some sort of accursedness. Social media as well. And, yes, unfortunately. Yes, especially. And, uh, and... And in 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 unlearning that prejudice, there's also an unlearning of that interpretation. And so there's a way in which the way that the scripture has traditionally been read becomes broken open to a new and more welcoming way of reading. And I think that there are those in the Christian community that would celebrate that when it's happened in the past. It's also possible that they may want to put the brakes on when it's happening in the present. Yes. And and when we talk about welcoming and affirming churches, and when you just walked through the, the, the list of, of different types of welcoming, so marriage equality, the control of women over their own bodies and the disposition of those bodies, the ways in which immigrants are treated, you find in social media but also in, in more traditional forms of media and also from pulpits real pushback against that. Yes. And you yourself have experienced some of that pushback when you first became dean at Howard University. A group of of pastors, the National Black Church Initiative, wrote a letter decrying you. This was in 2011. And even, uh, I came to find out, would would hold preach-ins outside of Howard University. And there's there's one particular passage from this letter that I want to, to just read briefly and allow you the opportunity to respond. And uh, so these, these pastors from the National Black Church Initiative write, Dean Pollard, along with other liberal African-American ministers, is trying to impose new sexual theology that is contrary to our biblical tradition, which cannot be accepted if we expect the spirit of God's teachings to survive in this modern climate. And I'm going to ask you to respond both from your own personal and theological place, but also to the extent that you can in this wider context of this movement that we've begun to talk about of, of the breaking open of, of Scripture around things like the descendants of Ham and, and new welcoming readings? Um, I think the, the important distinction has to be made between for, for, for those of us who take the biblical record seriously, between reading the Bible as authority and reading the Bible as authoritarianism. And there's a world difference between the two. To read it as authority is to recognize that in this text, with all of its 
blemishes and good places. It reflects the human experience in all of its ecstasy and agony. It reflects us at our best and at our worst. And therefore, it is always capable of teaching us. It is a record of the engagement of a community with the divine. And that is an absolutely marvelous thing. But authoritarianism takes us to a very frightening place when we would make rigid, move beyond doctrinal to dogmatic, the lessons of the biblical record as if they are enshrined for all time. I think we sometimes forget that even in the biblical record, there are places where it is written about the record itself being held inviolable and sacred at a time when the biblical record as we now know it didn't even exist. Um, so we, we're, we're really good at the revisionist history piece, whether we're on the so-called left or right, we, um, we absolutely take seriously, I think, the biblical text. I certainly do. For me, it is a gift from God. But I'm also very clear uh, that God writes the gift on every life that comes into this existence. And so the record of the sacred is constantly being created. It is always being made new. And we bring our interpretations to that particular written text, all of us, without any reservation. And as long as we understand that, then that also gives us, I think, the ability to meet each other across our various disagreements, to wrestle well with the text and by implication with each other. But when we've decided that there is no more learning for us to do, that we know everything there is to know um, about uh, the divine, or to decide that it's all enshrined uh, in however many um, numbers of pages there are from Genesis to Revelations, um, forgetting that, of course, different traditions have different texts called the Holy Bible that others do not have, Eastern versus Catholicism versus Protestantism. Uh, I mean, there are just so many variations on the theme, and we are quick to dispense with those kind of discrepancies as long as we can hone on, hone in on that which is going to keep um, those individuals whom we most fear away from us, sequestered. And I don't have time for fear. Um, and that includes not being afraid of those who would want to exclude me too. Now, in, in our conversation, you've used some language throughout the conversation that I just want to highlight. So earlier in the conversation, you talked about strategies of inoculation. And here you just used the word sequestering and, and fear and, and keeping people apart. And so much of our current national discourse 
is based around exactly those kind of mechanisms and questions. We, we want to build a higher wall on our southern border to keep others out. And, you know, you're, we're, we're having this conversation in Chicago, and Chicago has, has maybe not physical walls, but deep economic and, uh, and structural walls between economic classes and races. Um, seems like we're a wall-building folk a lot of times. And, you know, and, and when we look at, at the biblical text, you know, you also look at, at texts like Leviticus and it says, you know, keep things separate, keep things apart. And yet, in what you've been saying, there's also the reality that, that the ultimate keeping apart, the divine from creation, God, God's self chose to transcend that and get get into the messiness of humanity. So... Does does the does the separation, this urge for inoculation, this urge for sequestering, is that where you find your opportunity to minister? Is that where you find your opportunity to go deeper? Is that where you find your opportunity to transcend? Am I hearing that correctly? Yes, that's that's where you minister best. It's it's in the difficult places. It's it's in the rough places to be made straight. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Alton B. Pollard III. He's Dean of Howard University's School of Divinity in Washington, D.C. We're discussing the concept of radical hospitality that Pollard finds to be the heart and soul of the gospel. So what are some of the concerns now, moving into 2016 and beyond, that are animating your ministry, that are on your radar as as needing that kind of water troubling, if I can use that phrase. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we have yet to um, come fully to terms with issues of gender. Sexuality is, of course, um, on the front page right now, but I think to some degree, um, sexuality um, will not, I think, fully and authentically be addressed until and unless we come to terms with gender equality, reproductive rights, all of these kinds of things that um, are very much um, a part of women's lives and by implication uh, not directly under the control of men um, is something that is still for a lot of we brothers uh, a very terrifying prospect. We must control our women. Um, and this goes back countless eons uh, to the very notions, in fact, of the deity itself, um, the dismissal of the feminine archetypes for the divine, um, because God must be a male. God must be paladin. God must be marauder and God must be vengeful, et cetera, et cetera. And I think uh, with respect to issues of, of race, you know, they are of a, of a piece. Um, but fundamentally, I think, and immigration as well, I think fundamentally it, it all boils down to are we able to see the face of the divine in, in the other? Um, and if we cannot move from the other to another, um, then we are lost. And the very notion of a demos, a democracy, is farcical 
at best and parasitical, I think, at, at worst. So we'd better do our homework and decide that all of us matter. Um, but all of us matter in our particularities. Black lives matter. And so do women's lives and gay lives, queer lives, native indigenous lives, young people's lives. It, all of our lives matter where we are situated. So if you try to deny me my black life, <laughs> don't be surprised that I try to deny you yours. But as a person of faith, I know that it is possible to rise above that and, and more than rise above it to challenge your capacity to hate with something that is even greater. And the things that you're describing, the, the, the issues that you are, are, are moving towards now, they're not small issues. No. And well, I left out one issue. Yes, sir. Religion. We have to also understand. I, I love the way that, that Bishop Desmond Tutu put this. God is not a Christian. Um, where did we get that from? Um, we know that Jesus is not a Christian. We may not like it, <laughs> but we know it. But we have definitely decided in this society uh, and perhaps throughout much of the Western world that uh, if there is a God, that God must be Christian. And that is, um, I think it is beyond uh, ludicrous. And it, it makes a mockery of the one who knows far more than any of us put together could possibly know. So in what, what I hear you saying, you're taking on not only societal, uh, huge aspects of, of, of societal strife, but it just sounds like you've also kind of laid the axe to the root of the very tree that you're standing on because you are a professional religious person. So in the midst of, of this, this, uh, this journey, what continues to give you strength for the road? What continues to, to feed you as you're, as you're going after things that probably will not be solved in your or my or our children's lifetimes? Um, it's, the, it's, it's the miracle of the experience, day in, day out. Um, I am blessed and honored to lead a, a graduate theological institution I can't say why that is the case in terms of merit or anything of that sort. I just know that I have been given this gift. It is a gift that allows me to share with students primarily of African descent, with a faculty and staff and an entire community of alumni and friends this very simple notion that all of us need each other. And that means in very simple social terms that I have to tear down the walls that divide. And if you are gay or straight or bisexual or transgender, if you are male or female, if you are Muslim or Christian or have no discernible faith at all. It makes you not any one iota less 
human than me. I need you. And I can no more afford to let you go than I would let go of myself. And this is the journey that I am on that I find so utterly enthralling, captivating, exciting. And every day I get up and I give thanks. Well, Reverend Dr. Alton B. Pollard, thank you so much for this conversation. I've really enjoyed speaking to you, and I appreciate your time with us today. Thank you. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the Chicago Theological Seminary in Hyde Park here in Chicago, Illinois. Chicago Theological Seminary is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place in the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, learn about old shows, send us an email, and listen to more stuff about our guests if you visit us on the web at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. Thank you.